Hello, hello. Welcome to our Job the Stamp podcast. If it is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you've been following the gang for a while, welcome back, my friend. This podcast showcases talented young scientists from different parts of the world who, with their undeniable passion for science, dedicated mindset, diligent work, and exceptional achievements in the STEM fields, are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. We also infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. The guests are ISAF, USIS, SIUS, RSI, and ITEM alumni. You can discover more about that on www.dropthestand.com, linked in our bio. If you enjoy listening to the episode and think this is worth tuning into, feel free to share it with others tagging the pod because we love seeing some supportive queens and kings. And now, let's jump right into the episode and discover who is gonna be dropping the stand today. Faith Ainello is a researcher in neurotechnology who we are welcoming today on the podcast. She's also an advocate for science and an innovator at the Knowledge Society that is an Olympic-level training program for teens who want to impact billions through STEM and entrepreneurship. Despite her young age of 16 years, Faith already communicated science at events such as the Harvard Alumni for Education and Tribal Skill. She also interviewed Sir Richard Roberts, a Nobel Prize winning biochemist, at a 2020 Future Docs conference. She also founded a company, Exonally, where they're working on multiple initiatives to create wearable technology that will provide relief for anxiety and pain attacks. Through TKS, Faith also helps lead a Boss Ladies initiatives that inspires girls across North America to pursue careers in STEM and own their worth as the next generation of strong female leaders. So I'm more than excited to expand on various topics in neuroscience and entrepreneurship and also how to empower young girls in science. Let's just jump right into the conversation. Hi, Faith. Welcome on the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to speak with you today. I'm really glad to explore all the amazing topics you're going to bring today on the podcast. Before rushing into that, we love exploring here the initial moments, dating a little bit back in time. So do you remember the first moment or event that eventually drew you close to the world of science? Definitely. So I think for me, it was a bit of a slow process where I was always very interested in the way people think and why people felt the things they did. As a really little kid, I can remember going to school and being nervous for a test or going and jumping off the wharf in my town down 20 feet into freezing cold ocean water and being terrified of what was underneath the surface. And just all these little things that kept adding up to me wondering, why do I feel like this? Why am I thinking this way? Why are other people nervous before certain things? And as I started to learn more about psychology and learn more about the aspects behind the way people think, I wanted to learn the biological processes. So I became really interested in the science behind why panic attacks occur or why people experience depressive thoughts. And eventually this led me to the National Academy of Future Physicians and Medical Scientists, which is a conference that runs every year. And they bring in all these amazing doctors and scientists who talk about a variety of topics from cancer treatment to neuroscience to even being a patient. And at this conference, this is when I really realized that 
science is my passion and I really want to make a difference in the world and in society through the work that I'm doing. So I think that was kind of my origin moment, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah, that's amazing. So you've had a gradual buildup, more of a slow burn, but it led you to where you are today. I really like the aspect that you brought up that you wanted to know how things essentially work. Science hate small talks. No service level conversations are allowed. We always want to go deeper. Oh, definitely. And I think the thing about always needing to go deeper is that there's always something under the surface. But the main driver behind that is someone's curiosity. Because to go deeper, you have to understand the fundamentals, the first principles first. And I'm saying first a lot, but you have to get that step in the beginning that takes you down the path that leads you to a discovery. For me, it was, oh, I'm thinking like this before a test and I'm getting nervous and my hands are shaking. Why does that happen? Then I realized that there are certain chemicals in the brain responsible for anxiety. Why does that happen? And it just leads you down this almost rabbit hole. And if you're interested in something, you just want to learn more and more about it. So I really encourage everyone listening to this podcast, if you're passionate about something, fuel that curiosity, just keep learning about it. It all starts with the initial moment. And there is no problem with, you know, emphasizing first, because it's like the domino effect. Once you're in science, and you're truly passionate and curious about it, the rest is history, basically. I love that you brought the domino effect, because that resonates with a lot of what I'm interested in. And that'll definitely come up later in this podcast. So very excited to speak with you more on that. That's so cool. You've mentioned curiosity, but are there other aspects of science that made you stick with the STEM fields in the long run? It's very interesting, actually, because I've always been a better writer and philosopher than a science or math student. So I love this question because it's a question I've actually asked myself a lot. Why do I still continue to pioneer in STEM when it doesn't necessarily come as naturally to me? Um, For a lot of when I was younger, I switched back and forth between actually wanting to sing and be on Broadway or wanting to be a fiction writer. I wasn't really always the kind of kid who said, I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up. It just, it hadn't occurred to me yet. So to me, my passion for the brain and my passion for actually helping people who seriously struggle with mental illness becomes more fully realized when I'm able to experiment with different metabolic pathways and to go deeper into STEM. So although I am a writer by nature, science helps me not only advocate for those that struggle with mental illness, but find effective solutions for better treatment options. So the writer part of me is able to communicate this and get that out through articles or through um, speaking at different events. And then through science and through my research, I'm able to realize this by conducting experiments and analyzing different chemicals in the brain. Even though you are not singing on Broadway right now, being on stage, but you are communicating science effectively in the spotlight. And I believe that your writing and presentation skills in the field of science mean a great advantage, because just as In biochemical processes, the huge macromolecules have to be broken down into digestible and understandable pieces. You can grab those initial traits you have and use it for the inspiration of many. Exactly. And even giving presentations and writing articles, you have to be able to communicate with your audience because if you can't grab the audience you're trying to talk to, especially when you're trying to break the stigma around mental illness, you're not going to get very far. So the art of storytelling and the art of um, building metaphors and understanding your target audience and how to grab them effectively is so important in science because you can have the most amazing discovery, the most um, interesting endeavor, 
But if you aren't able to communicate that with people effectively, no one's really going to listen to you and you won't be able to get your idea out there. So that's something I've really had to internalize, especially over the past year or so, because as much as I want to build these things and develop these things, I also have to build my storytelling skills and my public speaking skills along the way. You've brought us such an essential concept. If we are talking about the culture of Silicon Valley, there was a presentation about an investor and he said that one of the biggest mistakes a startup can make in the seed or the initial phase is not interacting with people with potential customers. I know that you are also invested in entrepreneurship and breaking stigmas around mental health. Could you expand on the mission of your company, Exonally, and what kind of initiatives in the realm of mental health are you targeting? Exonally is a company that I have developed in just the beginning of this year. I think we really started to initialize it in um, February, March. So our company is working to develop an innovative wearable technology solution to reduce panic attacks by preventing them before they occur. So as for the mechanisms of how we're doing this, um, I can describe a little, but I can't say too much because we're actually in the process of acquiring a patent. But what I can tell you is that we're applying to grants and working on a variety of proposals and partnerships that will give us the resources to develop a wearable prototype and be able to roll this out to the public. Recently, our focus has been very um, international, actually, where we're looking at um, this initiative we named ClareMind, and we're looking at enabling teens in Lebanon with greater access to mental health care. We're talking to a lot of um, Arabic companies working in the mental health space, companies working on the ground in Lebanon to help teens deal with different mental health issues and break the stigma around mental health. And we're looking at whether or not we're going to be able to roll out an actual wearable solution that could detect anxiety and actually have a pop-up on your phone and say, hey, it looks like you're getting anxious right now. Maybe walk through one of these exercises. And through our platform, you'll actually be able to either do a breathing exercise, a DBT exercise, which is kind of walking through your um, mental processes. You could look at your thinking traps, maybe if you're falling into overthinking or blaming yourself for certain things. And it's just really interesting because there's a lot of solutions out there, or there's a lot of technologies really, like the Fitbit, the Apple Watch, that don't have the software capacity or just don't have the biochemical capacity to say, oh, there's a panic attack about to occur. There is nothing like that on the market already. So the thing that we're trying to develop and build is a sort of technology that is able to detect the panic attack using an algorithm that we are in the process of programming and actually prevent it before it occurs. And just imperative to keep yourself in check. And it is very inspiring that you forward into the field of uh, mental health because the whole concept of mental health, if we date back a little bit in time, was considered a bit of a dirty word and had a negative effect. But the tables are really turned now. And the platform you are now building and no details given out, but you're essentially placing mental health in the hands of the people who are using or who would use your application, right? So no need to directly contact the doctor. You can send the data in and they analyze it or the platform already analyzes itself. So the platform will analyze it itself. And the big thing about our initiative is we want it to be accessible and open to the public because Exonally is just as much a social movement as it is a science and technological movement. We're a startup that supports gender inequality in and of itself with each of the three founders identifying as female. We're women-led, women-run, female-oriented, and we understand that 
women also deal with mental health differently than men and people who have um, struggles with their identity or they experience discrimination because of a variety of things, even as we've seen in the public light lately, where people are struggling with race issues or um, issues relating to identifying as LGBTQ+. We understand that there are so many different aspects that are related to mental health, and you can't just have a platform that tra- tracks your psychological issues, and you can't just have a platform that tracks the biological component involved in panic attacks or involved in anxiety. You must have a mixture of both to truly work and to truly make a difference in your mental health. So one thing that we're doing through Exonally is we want to make sure that it is as accessible and affordable as possible and that it's open to all kinds of people. We know that there's so much stigma around having a mental illness and around dealing with your mental health. So we want it to be something that is discreet, easy to use, easy to understand, and is also available in a variety of languages on a variety of platforms And in a bunch of different countries, we're looking at Lebanon now, but initially, once we get the money and once we're able to have enough funding through the grants we've applied to, we want to be able to roll this out all across North America and internationally eventually. Congratulations to you for putting together this initiative with like-minded female uh, youth leaders and disseminating the beneficial message of uh, taking care of your mental illness and providing this open source and really going beyond the borders of the status quo. Definitely. Thank you. Talked about externally, but you've also mentioned a bit that external factors can have an impact on your mental health. So in what forms do you see the current pandemic situation affect one's well-being? Oh, there's been so many, so many ways that it's affected people's mental health. And this is actually a subject very close to my heart because I've seen other kids at my school and adults and even kids within the TKS program struggling with their mental health because of the situation or their mental health struggles have gotten worse because of the pandemic. I think as humans, we are social animals and we weren't necessarily made to sit in front of screens all day and converse just over a platform like Zoom or even a platform like this. We love to talk to people and have regular FaceTime with people. So the actual elimination of face-to-face contact is pretty detrimental to all peoples, not just teens as a whole. And with that, we've seen um, as a whole, like the mental health community, there have been a serious uptick in suicide rates and even calls to the suicide hotline with the keyword coronavirus and a variety of other hotlines. And it's 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 tough to see because so many people are struggling with this and it doesn't help that people are physically alone. But I think platforms like Headspace, Calm, meditation apps, and then even talk life, ways that people can communicate with each other about their mental illness and feel less alone and more connected is so helpful. And I think that those platforms and those, um, even Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, just ways that people can connect virtually, even when they're not physically together, will make such a difference as we continue to go through the pandemic. Because we don't even know what work will continue to look like or what school will look like next year. I had a couple conversations with some parents and friends the other day about how my friend's little sister's in kindergarten and you would think that a lot of kindergarten is understanding social skills and learning how to interact with other kids but if you have a bunch of six and seven year olds sitting on a computer all day they're not necessarily getting the same skills to learn how to cope emotionally conflict resolution 
things like that that they would have in a physical environment, not to mention access to resources. Some kids don't have a computer. Some kids don't have the money to pay for online school or pay for Wi-Fi if you don't have internet connection. One thing that really hit Boston hard, I think, is that a lot of kids rely on school lunch because their parents just can't afford to pay for three meals a day. And that was taken away. And there's a lot of Meals on Wheels programs that are really helping to alleviate this issue. But the fact that we don't have school in place even messes with a lot of parents who work full-time jobs and they're unable to care for their kids full-time in addition to that. So I think that the current pandemic has definitely affected people's mental health negatively. But at the same time, we're seeing initiatives like mine come out of this, initiatives where people are looking at doing online um, therapy sessions, like group therapy online. And there's so many resources like BetterHelp, all these other things. So I think that the pandemic has affected people negatively, but at the same time, there's also opportunities coming out of this for the mental health space and for people to understand that you don't necessarily have to struggle alone. There are options out there for you to connect socially, to connect with a therapist online, or to even just figure out other coping strategies like meditation, um, watching your favorite movies, listening to music online. There's lots of things we can do. Oh, absolutely. It can be an overused phase in relationship talks or uh, life coaching, but it still stands its ground that communication is key. Even if that we are locked down in the pandemic, there's still a difference between purely messaging someone or having a video chat because you can translate nonverbal cues and you can read from the tonality of one's voice. So there are additional factors to that form of communication as well. Of course, and it makes it harder for people who struggle with social cues and with understanding um, tone of voice or different gestures and eye contact. It makes it harder for people who really rely on that not to be able to see that or interact with it regularly to become more comfortable with it. But at the same time, I think we're so lucky, lucky to have access to the internet and to have platforms like Zoom where we can see our friends in some kind of similar basis and we're at least able to talk and have some kind of social environment. I do miss seeing my friends in person though. I mean, I think um, as a religious person, church looks very different, which I thought was very interesting because we're seeing changes to all aspects of society. But I thought the way that this is affecting people, not only mentally, but spiritually, I mean, hugging was a big part of church for me. You would walk into church and you get a giant hug, but now we're not even going to church physically. So I think that the way it affects someone's mental mental processes and also spiritual well-being, that's taking a toll. And there's just ways that you have to kind of cope with that. We don't know what the world looks like going forward, but there are ways we can understand it by going online, finding the resources for ourselves. Community is truly the the lifeblood of uh, interacting with each other, especially when it comes to a spiritual connection, like praying together it can be measured by some impact, but it still feels different when you are 3D in the same room together and your hearts are linked into another topic, which is a great part of your life, the Knowledge Society. Could you expand on the mission and what being part of that group means to you? What has it brought to your life? So I love TKS. I talk about TKS all the time. And it's we describe it as an Olympic level accelerator for the next generation of leaders looking to impact billions through STEM and entrepreneurship. It's a program that runs for 10 months with teens 13 to 17 or 18. I think we might have 
a couple alumni who are on the older side, who are on the younger side, but we do sessions on the weekend that focus on everything from emerging technologies and industries like gene editing, AI, autonomous vehicles, to say a few, to real world challenges and projects like business consulting. I did two business consulting projects with them this year, and those have been extremely influential in the way I look at entrepreneurship and the way I even conduct myself in interviews. There's also um, mindset training and a heavy focus on community and how we interact as a group of kids, I think. Before TKS, I wasn't actually a fan of school because it's just hard to connect with other kids my age on such a deep level about science and about entrepreneurship. Everybody is kind of doing their own thing and it's hard to bring business up easily in a lunchroom conversation. (laughs) That's not necessarily something that comes easily to a lot of kids or a lot of students. That's not something most students are even doing or pursuing. That's why being a part of TKS and being in that community of other like-minded, ambitious peers has really helped me because it's made me feel a lot more connected to kids my age and even a, a lot more connected to myself as a whole because I've seen that it's not like, it's not that I just don't fit in at school. It's just that I am needed a better place to fit in. And TKS is that place where if you're that kid at school who always wants to work on science, always wants to work on different projects and is dedicated to make a difference in the world, and maybe you're not seeing that in the kids you're around at school, TKS is the perfect program because you're able to be around all these kids every single week. You're doing things during the week too. There's other things we do like running a boss ladies program. We have nights where we do stand-up like comedy um we had a talent show lots of crazy things that go on and it's just it's more than just learning about science and activating different projects to me the community is one of the biggest aspects I love TKS because I have friends who are working with me I have kids who are now my colleagues and are looking at different projects with me looking at the brain So I think that TKS is not only a place where you can learn about all these amazing science initiatives and get the opportunity to develop your mindsets, your skills, your public speaking. It's also a place to develop a family and a community of other kids who want the same things you want and have the same ambition you do. I think no one could have better expanded on the topic, get a promotion really to a knowledge society who has such an impact on your life. When you are part of a community that is pushing you into the direction where you would like to grow as not just a professional, but also as an individual is optimizing for that quality in that people around you in the realm of science. So you truly become a part of that special family outside the borders of, of your school and, and pouring into businesses, which you've mentioned before, have partners from that community. Do you see correlations between the research projects and entrepreneurships what would your tips be to someone who who wants to excel in in both of the fields i love this topic because i see both the sides of when science and business can be such a dynamic duo and then i also see the side where science is being used to profit on people um through maybe biopharma, some of those companies, I see where that can go wrong sometimes. So I think that this is a topic that's near and dear to me. And I'll start from my personal experience. I'm definitely much more entrepreneurship, public speaking, networking oriented than technical science and lab work oriented. Not that I don't love research and getting down into the nitty gritty of why mental health disorders occur, but it just doesn't necessarily come as naturally to me as some of the entrepreneurship does. So I think with entrepreneurship and science, 
um, some of the correlations between those two are that when you're just doing research and you don't necessarily have the public speaking skills or the communication skills, like I've said before, to express what you're working on and to bring it to the general public, that can be hard because you could come up with the most amazing discoveries and you're not really able to make them accessible to others. One way I see that um, one woman who's doing this really well is Jennifer Dudna when she's working on gene editing and she's working in the genomics field. I really think she's done this really well and she's been able to kind of push CRISPR and get gene editing to a place it wasn't at before. I really believe in making science innovations accessible. I think that that's the good side of science and business working well together, where it also can go very wrong. Like in clinical trials, I did a whole project understanding how clinical trials can sometimes take advantage of people and how the drug development business is actually targeting low and middle income countries where they can sometimes um, be testing drugs that have already been developed or testing drugs for diseases that have already been cured or have treatments that are working very well just to make more money. And that's something that really bugs me, actually, because I think exploiting people for money through science is disgusting. It's something that we definitely have to move away from as a community. And it's not something that plagues the whole community, but it's definitely, I mean, with the wake of the coronavirus and the rise of clinical trials regarding that, it's something I'm worried about where they're taking advantage of people with these new vaccine trials or with drug trials and even people who are volunteering for money or they're volunteering because their only access to healthcare is through a clinical trial or their kids have some debilitating illness and they are told that this vaccine or this treatment will help them and then this child ends up having irreversible side effects or maybe even dying because of the trial that they were a part of and the families are given no explanation or they're not given... Um, further warning in their own native language. So I think that when it comes to entrepreneurship and science, it's so interesting to see bio businesses rise up and spread accessibility and understand new innovations and share that with the public. I love that side of it. But on the other end of the spectrum where people are using clinical trials or they're experimenting on these people in low and middle income countries with no access to healthcare, that's something that really hurts me and something I want to speak out against because it's not fair and it's not something we really think about living in a first world country like the US. So I think that when we go out and we get medicine and we understand that, hey, this is a drug that I'm taking, it's been tested, but where has it been tested? What is that company doing to test those drugs? And if it's if it's a company that is going about drug testing the wrong way, it's something we need to speak out against and maybe even boycott. It's a really interesting topic since the initial phases of drug development is pretty fast, running the analytical tests and getting the, the fingerprint of the solution and then the lab test. But the third or the fourth phase, when they are actually testing out in humans, can last much longer. And what you've said that you know, clinical trials can be unregulated, so for example, with no government interference, um, present a highly possible way for exploitation. The way those clinical trials are conducted go against the ethical codes or the moral conduct, especially in third world countries, right? Or underdeveloped ones. Definitely. And it's a serious issue because we have European or American companies going into places like South Africa or Argentina and running drug tests or vaccine tests and basically experimenting on these citizens who 
don't have any other access to healthcare, so it's something they kind of have to sign up for, or they've signed up for something where it wasn't explained to them in their native language, and it's something that they didn't understand what they were getting into, or it wasn't clear because of the way the company has masked it, when these participants end up getting severe side effects or even dying because of it, or some participants even get access to medication through the trial. And once the trial's over, this medication is taken away from them. So it's actually, I get very emotional about this because it's something that really upsets me to think that you could have companies going in and testing and then either not giving their patients the medication, their patients get side effects and they suffer from it. And the parents of these children or the people and families involved weren't aware that this was going to happen or that these side effects were a possibility, or they're just being taken advantage of and not getting monetary compensation or not getting the healthcare compensation that they deserve. So it's something that we definitely have to look into more, especially because most um, drugs that are used in first world countries, they're not necessarily tested in those countries. And with the rise of the coronavirus, we have a lot of companies testing different drugs, testing medications, racing to develop a vaccine, but at what cost? You can sense that um, especially the stock values of big pharma have especially increased in times of the coronavirus, which is a no-brainer. Those people can be desperate for a solution and that cry for help can be exploited um, in the wrong hands. You've mentioned that you conduct research on your own. I would love you to expand on that, but especially on how you envision the future of your technology, you've brought up several techniques that are being used now, like CRISPR and other gene editing or genomics tools. How do you, you see the, the world of neuroscience in the upcoming ages? I'll start with kind of my overview on where I see neurotechnology going, and then I'll kind of seg into what I've been working on recently and over the past year or so. Basically, a lot of people, especially with the rise of neural networks and understanding the brain and trying to map the brain, everyone likes to say things about how the brain works like a computer and the brain can be fixed like a computer. But that's really not true because you can't fix a brain the same way you could solve an issue on a mechanical device. You can't, when you start having a flashback, you can't force start a different application to have a new memory. You can't reset the brain. So I think a lot of the ideas behind how the brain works are a little bit misguided just because people want to view it the same way you would view a computer. But solutions wise, you cannot fix the brain the same way you would fix a computer. So that's something I really love to emphasize to people and love to explain, especially as we look at new innovations in neurotechnology. Neurotechnology in and of itself is any technology which allows us to understand the brain, consciousness, and thought processes. Through that, there's kind of three buckets of applications. There's healthcare, education, and then also, um, so there's healthcare, education, and then there's also the range of like different devices for gaming and VR and that kind of thing where people are looking to use them for widestream media. BCIs, which are brain computer interfaces, can be used in so many different industries. And it's very interesting to even see people pioneering this, like Elon Musk with his new um, work in Neuralink. I heard, I think this week or last week, that he's working on an innovation where you'll be able to stream music in your head. So I think that's so interesting. I know Dolby Digital has worked on using EEG caps, which measure your brain waves and different brain function to see what colors people react best to in a movie or what sounds 
And it's insane to see the different ways that people are taking advantage of this technology because it does have so many different applications. I think with neurotechnology, a lot of people um, have a basic idea of what it is from science fiction and from the movies and the media, like maybe a lot of people think about the matrix, but it's, it's much more than that because there's different kinds of brain computer interfaces and there's different kinds of technology. There's invasive and non-invasive. Those are the two main categories and non-invasive is when you think of the patients in the movies with the caps on their heads and all of the different electrodes all over their heads. Those measure general brainwave function and they're able to measure lots of neuronal processes at once. They cannot measure a single neuron um, by itself, but they measure just kind of the overview of different brain waves and that kind of thing. Then there's invasive brain computer interfaces like a Utah array or like neural dust. And those are used to understand um, people with epilepsy or people who don't have full range of movement in their limbs. Maybe you have neural dust and you're able to communicate with your eyes. I know there was a girl in TKS who studied a lot about how you could communicate through blinking and then you could interact through different letters. So there's a bunch of different ways that you can interact with brain computer interfaces and the field is continuously expanding. With that, um, there's not a ton of BCIs looking at mental illness or understanding mental health in general. We have things like the Muse headset, which is for meditation and that kind of thing, but it's not fully immersive where you're able to visualize all of the ways that the brain is functioning. It's more for kind of maintaining a focus or a calm state, not necessarily understanding anxiety, panic attacks, depression, anything like that. Then you have companies like Neurable that are working on virtual reality and the intersections that that has with brain computer interfaces. And there's a lot of work that can be done there with even exposure therapy. Maybe someone's scared of heights and you get over your fear of heights with a therapist in a virtual environment where you can pull the plug and you're not necessarily stuck up on a high ledge. It's just all virtual. So I think that it's, it's very interesting the way that the mental health realm is going in terms of understanding BCIs better. I think that in addition with BCIs, there's a lot of ethical questions that people ask. If my brain is connected to the internet, could somebody hack it? Um, could somebody like pull a kill switch? Could somebody hack my brain and take control of me? Those are all questions that people ask. And because we don't have um, fully functional invasive BCIs yet, like we see in the movies, we don't necessarily have answers to those questions. And it was something I really had to think about as a scientist, like, where do I draw my own ethical lines with what I think about brain computer interfaces and the way that my work could be used? I know at the beginning of TKS, I was really encouraged to think about what I wanted to focus on and what I wanted my focus to be in, whether it was biochemistry or BCIs. And I actually passed up BCIs at first because I felt that I don't want to develop something that could necessarily be taken advantage of by someone to harm people. But at the same time, the more I thought about it, any scientific innovation in the wrong hands could go wrong. I mean, when you think about um, people talk about biowarfare, that we asked ourselves whether or not the coronavirus was bioweaponry and whether it was um, brought upon certain populations on purpose. There are these questions that we always have to be asking ourselves, like what if what I'm working on or what if I developed could possibly harm people or would have a harmful effect on someone? And I think in that 
um, situation, when you're asking yourself those questions, does the benefit outweigh the harm? I think the way that neural prostheses could interact and they could affect people's quality of life in general far, far outweighs some of the risks that could be taken from having these developments um, put in your head. And I think that through that, when people ask, okay, well, I don't want a chip in my brain. I don't want anybody to be in control of me. That's your prerogative. If you wouldn't like to have that kind of thing in your head or in your body, that's your prerogative. And I don't think it's something that um, will eventually be mandated like we see in the movies. A lot of people ask me if they think the government is going to mandate BCIs, and I'm not sure where that question's coming from, but I highly doubt it, especially considering how expensive they are to develop at the moment. But in addition to that, the future of neurotechnology is really, um, it's mostly in entertainment, education, and healthcare, whether we're dealing with epilepsy, dealing with mental illness, which I mostly talk about, or we're watching movies, or we're looking at things in VR, and we're reacting to that through BCIs. I think it'll be really interesting to see how, um, with the pandemic and with the large increase in virtual reality use that's happened because of the pandemic, how more people start to use um, virtual reality headsets that engage in um, electrode sensing technology where they're looking at your brain waves while you're watching a movie or while you're playing a game. I think that's very interesting. And then also with education, if we're out of school and we're really only doing remote learning from now on, how could we bring BCIs into that so that teachers could monitor our focus in real time? How could we bring um, virtual reality into that? So I think that there are so many, so many different industries. I could talk about this forever, but that's the that's my take on the future of BCIs. Thank you for your helpful and detailed expansion on this topic because BCIs, especially a rising theme with the, the many possible technological advantages, let it be the medical field or not, of course, it raises some complex ethical issues. It's great that you've touched on the brain metaphor part because it can be flawed in many ways, the same way um, you're typing on your phone. They treat it as an autocorrect algorithm. It changes the way what you wanted to say. But in the case of the brain, you cannot redo that typo. Well, you've already accidentally sent the message to your brain in a way. There are also the provocative effects that you brought up. One's ability to act freely and without external um, interference built inside. But still, with those complex ethical issues, science should not be stopped, put a roadblock by bringing up these questions, but really investigate those gray zone ethical areas with attention and care. Definitely. And I think even with the ethical issues that are coming up because of access to BCIs and because of the way that we're focusing so much on the future BCIs, there's also good things coming out of it where people are questioning more about the way that we even diagnose things now that we're learning more about the brain. One thing that I'm really passionate about and that I've worked on a lot is understanding how um, child abuse and adverse childhood experiences affect the way brain chemicals work and the way that certain processes in your brain function. I study metabolomics, which is the basically the category of all of the chemical reactions that occur in your body at any given time. And 37 trillion reactions happen every given second, which is insane to me. But through metabolomics, you can understand why certain chemical processes occur or what chemical processes cause certain effects or cause other processes to occur. 
And through that, I was able to actually look at stress stimuli in the HPA axis, which is the system in the brain that is responsible for dealing with a stressful situation. And I was able to really dig deep into that and understand that child abuse and adverse childhood experiences can actually cause adult onset diseases later in life, where significant stress consistently in your childhood could cause you to form heart failure later in life, Um, type 2 diabetes, all of these different diseases that you wouldn't expect because when certain metabolites, which are these chemicals, are consistently stuck in your brain and stuck in your system, it can cause inflammation. And that changes the way your DNA is read and transcribed over time. Through that, I studied the catecholamine biosynthesis pathway, which is a fancy way of saying I studied how your body produces adrenaline due to the fight or flight response. And with adrenaline, noradrenaline and dopamine, when those are in your system for a long time, they cause inflammation because they're stimulants. When you're in a fight or flight stimulation, you're either going to freeze because you're so freaked out that you're paralyzed and all the chemicals running through your brain make you feel like you're, you can't move, like it's almost impossible, or you're going to run away as fast as you can and your brain is going to flood you with chemicals that allow you to get away from the threat as fast as you can. Through that, I was able to see that when you have um, those catecholamines, noradrenaline, adrenaline, and dopamine in your brain for long periods of time, it changes the DNA methylation. I was looking at how maybe people who experience child abuse and develop diabetes later in life, their doctor could have them on insulin or other diabetes medication and not understand that the core root of the problem really lies in the fact that they were abused as a child and that their brain functions differently. The chemical processes just aren't the same due to that abuse. Therefore, we should really be starting to look at the root cause of these problems. And that's why I love personalized medicine, because it looks at so many different factors in your life, not just the symptoms that you're showing at any given time. And it looks at like the way your genes have changed or the different genes that you have. It can look at the metabolites in your body. It can even look at your connectome, the way different neurons in your brain are connected and the way those function. So I think the future of medicine itself and what I've really been passionate about for the past year or so is personalized medicine. And it is looking at all of the factors that surround why you developed an illness. Someone struggling with dilated cardiomyopathy, which is another disease I looked into a lot last fall, and it results in your heart not being able to pump with the same energy that it used to. Someone suffering from that may have those gene issues because their DNA is transcribed differently due to abuse they received as a child. And it's a field of science that people haven't looked at in much depth yet because it's very hard to track, okay, well, someone had this abuse as a child and we weren't able to track the chemicals in their brain. Now they're dealing with this. What I'm trying to do through my research is show these connections um, quantitatively and be able to say that adverse childhood experiences are affecting these adult onset diseases in this way, and we can track it by mapping the pathways. Um, I've been using this pathway diagram or online pathways to map the catecholamine biosynthesis pathway, map the similarities between even chronic sugar intake and chronic stress. And eventually I want to be able to map the pathway between how these metabolites, um, adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine, and chronic stress can ultimately cause diabetes, heart failure, 
um, dementia, Alzheimer's, all of these other things. It's really interesting how the internal imbalance of emotions due to childhood abuse or neglect can be mapped or tracked by physical factors, parameters, which you are working on, trying to decipher those connections and prove it in a scientifically verified way. Definitely, because even with talking about science, I love the communication aspect of it. I love speaking on it. But if you don't understand what you're talking about and you don't really know, you can't really BS your way through a science talk when you're trying to apply for grants, or you're trying to get these biochemists as your mentors because these experienced people and doctors have been where you are. And if you're trying to work with people who have done more than you have, you need to understand the field. You need to be able to communicate it, but at the same time, know it on a deep level and have some sort of mastery. One thing in TKS that we talk about a lot is building your fat T. So if you think of the letter T, it has a long top and then a stem that goes down the bottom. And the idea in TKS is that we do explores where we learn about all these different kinds of fields so we can get a wide breadth of knowledge. But then we also do focuses where we go into one specific subject. For me, it's been metabolomics and BCIs. And you try to get mastery of knowledge so that you're able to kind of develop that T shape where you have the long breadth of knowledge, but you also have the mastery in one single subject or two single subjects. Because a lot of people can understand programming, they can understand biology, but very few people have really mastery in an intersection of things, maybe metabolomics and AI or BCIs and machine learning, different kinds of things. So with that knowledge and with the idea that when you are having an intersection in two fields, like um, building platforms or even business and science, public speaking and science, when you're able to bring those two together, it's so much stronger. It has a power effect by doubling those two fields. And we can now see that those borders are not so stark between two fields, but we have this horizontal uh, dissemination of the ideas and the emergence of new fields. Actually, really interesting that you've touched on genetic engineering and biowarfare and ethical questions in regards to co-founded synthetics. It's an international initiative that is infusing ethics with new era biotechnology. Really interesting, you know, that uh, a lot of times when we go into debates, a lot of emotional responses are brought up. But when you want to truly provide a solution, just as you said, you cannot touch the surface level interactions. You have to have a deep understanding of the subjects and bringing the facts through the lens of objectivity and convince people through that not necessarily emotional outbursts or very little knowledge of a single topic. Of course. And then even with um, understanding the Feynman technique, being able to explain your idea to various levels of understanding too, if you're explaining a project that you've been working on, and it's one thing to talk to a scientist, it's another to bring it to the general public and try to have people understand. And that's where a lot of the fear comes from when people in the general public don't know the processes or the mechanisms behind a BCI or behind gene editing, and they assume it's this scary thing that's going to mess with their bodies. But the issue there is that it just wasn't brought to the public in a way that everyone could understand, which is why when I practice presenting, I present from everyone to my mentors at the Knowledge Society to my little brother, because everyone needs to be able to understand the information you're getting. And if you can present it to a wide variety of audiences, it 
assures to you that you know your information, but you're also sharing it in a way that makes sense. About the grandma talk you've mentioned, it was raised in a conversation you conducted with a well, very well-known scientist. <laughs> Could you expand on that memorable conversation? Oh, I'd love to. So as an alumni to the Future Docs Conference, I had the amazing opportunity to apply to interview one of the speakers at the conference of the National Academy of Future Physicians and Medical Scientists this summer. So this past June, um, I was picked to interview Sir Richard Roberts, who is a Nobel Prize winning biochemist and definitely one of the people I look up to in the industry. I completely fangirled out, hopefully not on camera. I know a lot of people have watched that interview and you can't tell, but I was shaking the whole time. Captive professional. Thank you. Uh, I think through that, it was very helpful because I've had a lot of experience interviewing people and he was one of the most amazing people I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing. But I was able to talk to him about GMOs and how a lot of genetically modified organisms um, are impacting the agriculture industry and even impacting world hunger. I was able to speak with him a bit about his own work with Beverly Biolabs, which was very interesting because he noticed that I live in Massachusetts, quite close actually to where he researches in his lab. So through this conversation with really without knowing me very well, he invited me to possibly speak with him further and tour the Biolabs and I almost lost it. <laughs> I was so excited. But I think it's very interesting to be able to take people's questions and then ask them even in a way that makes sense for the person you're interviewing, um, pick the most important topics to discuss. I know we talked a lot about ethics in the GMO industry and what that looks like. There's a lot of um, discussions about whether GMOs are bad for you or good for you, whether we as first world countries should endorse GMOs because they really do help um, people struggling with hunger in third world countries, whether it's golden rice or whether it is um, plants that are struggling because they've been infested by bugs and you genetically modify a plant to produce fruit that is um, bug resistant somehow. So I think it's very interesting to see a scientist like Sir Richard Roberts, who is so passionate about social advocacy as well as I am, but at the same time passionate about um, gene editing and biochemistry and all of these other science topics that he's able to speak so well on and share with the public. One thing I love about the Future Docs Conference is that you have scientists from all over the world pouring into these kids who want to be doctors and want to make a difference in the field. So when you hear from someone and you're able to ask them questions like Sir Richard Roberts, and they speak to you almost as if you're a peer, as if you're someone they've worked with before, that really struck me because he did not talk down to me. He spoke to me in a way that a lot of adults sometimes don't speak to kids because a lot of adults can say, oh, you're just a kid. What do you know about science? You're 16. How could you tell me anything I haven't already heard about this field? But the way that a lot of these doctors speak at the conference is they see us for who we are. They see us for kids who are doing our own research. We are studying the medical industry. And even in TKS, we find that adults are blown away sometimes by the level of research we're conducting at such a young age. So the fact that Sir Richard Roberts was so cordial to me to even say that he might want to work with me at Biolabs one day was, it, it made such a difference to me just to be validated in that way and to see that 
we can have these conversations with people we sometimes idolize and we're able to move forward as a community because of it because the more we share information, the more we can spread it to other people. And once people understand maybe the science behind GMOs or the science behind why um, condemning them as a first world country is dangerous, that means a lot. Absolutely. And for your listeners out there, you can actually tune into the conversation. It's uploaded online if you want to give it a listen. And just a little bit of background, Sir Richard Roberts was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1993 for the discovery of introns. Um, if you read about uh, gene splicing, you can dive um, deep into that molecular mechanism. He's a molecular biologist. And it was really interesting to hear his take on genetic modification and how many people are actually pro-GMOs in countries like South Africa. And a very good job on the interview you've conducted, even though you were trembling inside. And I want to turn the tables a little bit here. If you could interview anyone living today or in the past, who would you choose and why? This is such a hard question. This is definitely one I had to think about a lot. Um, I mean, I have so many people I look up to today. I mean, there's Jim Quick, Jamila Jamil, Elon Musk, Jennifer Dudna, Party Sabetti. I mean, there's so many people I'm tempted to choose from. I think out of those people, I would choose Vishen Lakhiani, who is the CEO of Mind Valley, because he's exposed to some of the greatest minds and philosophies of the past couple decades. He has talked to so many people, curated so many important lessons through his Mind Valley platform. And there's innumerable innumerable things that I could learn from him and from his work, not only as someone learning from all these other people I would love to learn from, but also as a personal development guru himself. One of my goals this summer was to maximize my personal productivity without sacrificing my emotional health and awareness. And I think he's kind of the epitome of that, someone who focuses so much on personal development, but also has made a business out of it, has made it so that people have access to a platform where they can learn more about what it takes to make the most out of their lives and take and to make the most out of their passions and what they want to do in life. He's written two books, which I would highly recommend. His first book is called The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, which teaches you some rules for how to redefine your life. And that's, it's 10 I'll read it to you. 10 unconventional laws to redefine your life and succeed on your own terms. I give it five out of five stars. Amazing. And then he just had a new book come out that I'm in the middle of called The Buddha and the Badass, which has some more really interesting stuff about how you can redefine your perspective. And the way he talks about it is mirroring to the universe and then the universe will mirror back to you. So the way that you look at life and what a lot of people have said already too is that when you put something out there and you're focusing on certain things, it kind of comes back to you. Like the way I talk about it in, um, in respect to my religion is almost like prayer. When you pray for something and you're thinking about it and you're talking to God and you're looking to manifest that, it comes back to you as a blessing. And I think with his idea of things like lofty questions, asking yourself, um, why does exercise and come so easily to me? Why is it so easy for me to talk to people? When you're asking your brain those questions, you're actually kind of tricking your brain into saying, oh, um, why, why is that? Even if it's something you feel like you're not already good at, and you'll end up coming to the conclusions yourself to make yourself better at it. Some of my lofty questions have been, why 
is doing so doing homework so fun for me because homework used to be something I really struggled with. And then I asked, why is it so easy for me to connect to people of all backgrounds? Because one thing I focused on this year, especially consulting for Techstars Boston and looking at how to increase their pipeline of diversity in their application process. And then also working with Kudogo, which is a daycare franchise from Kenya. I really wanted to learn from other people and from their perspectives. So I did a lot of work with that. And I think that Vishen Lakiani, he just, he knows so much and he's talked to so many of basically the greatest minds of our generation. And then he is one of the greatest minds of our generation. So there's so much I could learn from him. Yeah, it would definitely be an inspiring and fulfilling and also stimulating conversation to share, learn even new hacks to elevate the quality of your life and just exchange ideas. So I hope that interview or that personal conversation will take place sometime. Oh, I hope so. Hopefully in the future. A little bit of a play section called the this or that game. So of course, as its name suggests, you got to choose either or. Okay. (laughs) All right. So very serious questions. Um, The first one coming up, pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Plane or road trip? Oh, road trip. Definitely. I wanted to road trip with my mom across all of the US this summer, but we couldn't because of COVID. Oh, that's so sad. I hope it's good to take place once the lockdown is over. I hope so. I know this is so random, but there's a place in Texas where you can watch the movie Jaws while sitting in an inner tube in the pool. And I want to do that so bad. I just think that's such an interesting experience. And my mom isn't a fan, but I think it would be very fun. No way. That would be really shocking. It would. It'd It'd be terrifying, but great at the same time. On a personal note, I've had a fascination for sharks since a little age, so I wanted to become a marine biologist because I thought that the quickest path to become a mermaid is to earn a PhD in marine biology. But on the note of sharks, you know, there's still a stereotype that they are so dangerous, but actually most of the attacks um, happen out of misidentification. There's a scientist who, a female scientist named Ocean Ramsey, who studies the behavior of sharks and she advocates for them. So. Definitely. I didn't know you were interested in that. I actually, um, I live on sort of an island in Massachusetts. I live in Nahant, so we see a lot of wildlife here. We have Northeastern's um, Marine Biology Center located on the peninsula or the island, depending on who you ask. (laughs) So I think it's really fun to talk about all of the versions of science, marine biology, theoretical astrophysics, any science you throw at me, I love to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And that also you have such an easy access to that department as well in your area. The the next one is now back to water, swimming in a pool or the sea. Oh, this one comes up a lot, actually, because we live on the ocean. It's funny. We always want to go to a pool. (laughs) So I think I have access to the ocean, but I rather swim in a pool. Yeah, the grass is always greener on the other side. (laughs) Definitely. It's so funny. And the next is um, Christmas or Thanksgiving? I think I rather Thanksgiving food, but I like Christmas vibes. Like I I rather celebrate Christmas. (laughs) Combine the two. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if anyone's actually watched the OC, it's like a um, older television show. One of the main characters developed uh, Chris Paca, and that was like a pun in the film combining both of the holidays. 
So you would have uh, Chris giving in that way, combining the two. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm one of those people who starts listening to Christmas music in the middle of November. So I, I try to combine the two if I can. That's great. Well, there is not big of a time difference between the two. So that's fully understandable. <laughs> that's true. The last one is sunrise or sunset? Sunset. And that's because I am not a morning person. That's really the only reason I say sunset. <laughs> Yeah, you would you would be able to catch the sunrise. <laughs> I'm someone who loves personal development, so I love reading books by Vishen Lakihani, Jim Quick, Robin Sharma, and I read Robin Sharma's book, The 5am Club, but I just can't find it within myself to get up at 5am. I can understand that. There are like even people who sleep for four hours and then distribute the sleeping hours within the day, but you've got to personalize that aspect and, and see what works in your case. Yes. And I actually have an interview coming up on a doctor I'm working with on how sleep affects the brain, if anyone's interested. So stay tuned for that. We are going to be on the lookout for that interview. But to capture all the things we've been talking about and encapsulate uh, the whole topic of the podcast and um, your personal expansion on the topic, as a female scientist, a strong female leader, what does science mean to you? I think to me, science means better understanding the mechanisms of the world to make an impact on those living within that machine. Because to understand science is to understand that science doesn't affect one single person. Your research will not just affect you, it will affect society and the world as a whole. And talking to your young female listeners, I think that you have to understand when it comes to science, science isn't just about the work you'll be doing. It's also about the people you'll be affecting. The thing that has kept me working on science and researching different scientific topics for so long, even being a generalist in a polymath and looking at so many different fields, is the fact that what I research and what I do, I bring that back to the people I love and how I could affect them and how I could help people struggling with mental illness, how I could help my friends, how I could better my own struggles with anxiety. So I think that understanding science and how what you do affects who you're around and it could affect the world as a whole that means a lot to me and you are doing an inspiring job for the future leaders by translating those complex concepts and explaining the wonders of science to others also by forging meaningful connections with your peers conducting interviews so introducing new techniques on how to cope with um, daily challenges and how to bring the best out of your mental health so i think it's been conversation packed with lots of bits of wisdom that are also practical and can be carried out in one's uh, daily life. So thank you for expanding on those. And I wish you the best with your current and future endeavors. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to come on and to talk to you. And I can't wait to tune into the next couple episodes of Drop the Stem. I love this podcast. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and more. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, which would ultimately help the algorithm to bring the message to even more people and inspire many. Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, Thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.